Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 66, Antigone Macedon, Philip V and the Social War. Following the defeat of Cleomenes at the Battle of Selassia in 222, King Antigonus III Doson did not have long to enjoy the fruits of his victories, since he would pass away by mid-221. His successor was to be the young Philip V. Born in roughly 238, Philip was the son of Demetrius II Aetolicus and the Epirah princess Phythia. He was no more than ten years old when his father died, and fell under the stewardship of his uncle Antigonus III. Luckily for Philip, Dosen decided to continue the Antigonid trend of familial loyalty. Despite marrying Phythia, he voluntarily refused to have children so there would not be a potential rival claim when Philip came of age. Thanks to his skilled leadership, Antigonus was able to bequeath a kingdom that was not rocked by foreign invasion nor eternal strife, and he had restored much of Macedonia's position in the Greek peninsula. Much of Philip's early life is unclear. But there is evidence to suggest that he might have accompanied his uncle during the Carian expedition of 227 and during parts of the Cleomenian War. It would certainly give him exposure to the requirements of war and form a bond between himself and the army, both of which he would become quite adept at managing. Shortly after Selassia, Antigonus sent Philip to the household of Aratus of Sicyon, the virtual leader of the Achaean League. One of the major consequences for the Cleomenian War was the alliance of Macedonia and the Achaeans, who had butted heads for decades prior to the conflict with the Spartans. I briefly touched upon this arrangement in the last episode, and at first glance it seems like a partnership of convenience. But in truth, the relationship between the Antigonid kings and the League was more complicated than I let on. In the fall of 224, the deal struck between Antigonus Doson and Aratus was finalized with an assembly in the city of Aegeum, and Antigonus was declared the commander-in-chief of all the allied forces. This marked the birth of the Simaki, or common alliance, between Macedonia and the various states of Greece. It wasn't really a novel idea, as it bore similarities to past alliances, the League of Corinth, as overseen by Philip II and Alexander, and the Hellenic League of Antigonus I Monophthalmus and Demetrius II Polyarchides. Antigonus Doson was elected hegemon in perpetuity, a position that was to be passed down to each Antigonid king upon taking the throne. As leader, he was able to summon allied military forces, along with overseeing councils of war where members would cast votes on policies and propose motions. It certainly gave the Macedonians primacy in the affairs of Greece, but the structure did differ from previous incarnations. For one, the Simaki was of an alliance of Macedonia and the Leagues, the Achaeans, the Boeotians, the Epirotes, the Salians, and others, including the defeated Spartans following the conclusion of the Cleomenian War. The Leagues retained self-autonomy and their overall administrative structure, and thus could function without too much intrusion from the king. This was counteracted by Antigonus's garrisoning of areas like the Acrocorinth, a site returned to Macedonian control by Aratus after Dosen included it on the list of unnegotiable demands to secure his aid against Sparta. Philip's attachment to Aratus was certainly a way to get to know the political network of the members of the Simaki, and reportedly he was quite fond of his Achaean host. The death of Antigonus Dosen in the year 221 would cut this enterprise short though, as Philip would need to return to Macedonia to confirm his coronation. However, because the crown prince was still a minor, Antigonus's will included several stipulations. 
Philip's retinue was to be overseen by a guardian, a man named Apelles, until Philip turned 18 in mid-220. The rest of the king's staff were filled by other officials, each hand-picked by Dosen to best suit the king's council. Ever the good uncle, Antigonus knew that he had to try and curb the machinations of the courtiers against his nephew, and hoped that the selective placement of men would prevent infighting and factionalizing of the court. Unfortunately, this was not the case, and Apelles would pursue his own agenda. Indeed, few had high opinions of the youthful Philip's prospects as king, whether among his enemies or his own staff, an opinion that, in hindsight, would bite them in the rear. Immediately following Dosen's death, an uprising from the Dardanians gave King Philip his first taste of command, one that he took with relish. It soon became clear that he was no pushover, and displayed his skill in military matters by swiftly crushing the Illyrian revolt. Philip was cut from the same branch as those like Pyrrhus or even Alexander. He was a warrior king through and through, eagerly throwing himself to the thick of fighting and single combat. Besides listing his natural charisma and quick wit, Polybius stated that above all else that he was a soldier, while some like the Roman historian Livy claimed that he was bloodthirsty. Defeating the Dardanians was but a preview of his future endeavors, but the new king needed to settle in his role as Hegemon of the Simaki. At about the same time as Philip's accession, trouble had been stirring in Greece thanks to the actions of the Aetolian League. For the most part, they kept their heads down throughout the entirety of the Cleomenian War, nominally allied with the Chians, but unwilling to help against the Spartans. Polybius alleged that there were secret talks in the lines between Aetolian leadership and Cleomenes, enough to sufficiently convince Antigonus Dosen to form the Simaki with the Achaeans, but nothing really came about of this affair. But it is precisely because of the Simaki that the Aetolians had become so antagonistic. The alliance directly challenged the traditional Aetolian practice of plunder and raiding to supplement their meager lifestyle due to the region's mountainous and unproductive landscape. They were renowned for their ability in hit-and-run tactics and skirmishes, but were viewed as duplicitous, more akin to wild barbarians than any respectable Hellene. Polybius's disgust towards them can naturally be attributed to this patriotic pro-Achaean perspective, but it is quite telling that their reputation was poorly regarded by so many authors and groups. It is after Dosen's death that we find them performing their usual antics, but, having been hemmed in by the larger powers, they ended up raiding the wealthy city of Messenia. The Messenians were understandably outraged by these transgressions, considering that they were allies with the Aetolians, and their petitions to the Aetolian assembly were met with scorn and mockery. The ringleaders behind these attacks were Dorimachus, a militant member of the League and son of a noted Oathbreaker, and Scopus, another high-ranking figure. Dorimachus especially held a hatred for the Simaki and looked for any pretext for war. Messenia was to be its casus belli. Messenia's prosperity was spared the fighting of the Cleomenian War, making it a ripe target for looting. And if the Aetolians conquered it outright, they would gain a valuable landing point on the southwest coast of the Peloponnese. Dorimachus's ultimate intention was to provoke the Messenians into attacking, which would then give him a reason to formally declare war. Inevitably, the other powers of the region would be drawn in, namely the Achaeans, since the Messenians were apparently on the verge of joining the League. They weren't really worried about Macedonia given Philip's youth, and the recently defeated Sparta could potentially be drawn into the conflict, as they had been neighbors and rivals with Messenia for generations. Aratus had taken the initiative by sending delegations warning the Aetolians to evacuate Messenia, all the while standing at the head of a large army. Scopas and Dorimachus decided to stand down and return to Aetolia laden with booty. 
Foolishly, Arantas took them at their word and sent most of his troops back to Bukian territory, seemingly just keeping a new recruits on hand. This only played into the hands of the Aetolians, who wheeled back around to confront the now diminished Achaean force. A series of miscalculations and blunders on Aratus' part saw his army routed outside of the town of Kepii in Arcadia. Luckily, they were saved from a total slaughter because it was friendly territory, but the damage had been done. The Aetolians were now emboldened by their success and began to plunder Achaean lands wholesale. Aratus was raked over the coals by his fellow assemblymen for his failure but the silver-tongued Sicyonian managed to point to past glories to gain their sympathy. Besides, he still had his trump card. It was time to call in the cavalry, both literally and proverbially speaking. Hello, this is J.P. Bristow from the Russian Empire History Podcast, the history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. Right now, we are looking at the origins and development of steppe cultures and the migrations into the East European plain of the peoples who would become the ancestors of Tatars, Bashkirs, Chuvash, and others living in the Russian Empire and Russia today. They will be meeting and interacting with the Hellenistic world of Central Asia and the Caspian. Please join us at the Russian Empire History Podcast as we delve into the bigger picture on the biggest country on Earth. Find us at therussianempirehistorypodcast.com and on all good podcast platforms. In 220, Achaean delegations were sent to each of the main members of the Simaki, including the court of Philip V. The crimes of the Aetolians against the Achaean League and Messenia were brought forth, the latter of whom was to be inducted into the Simaki, and the prosecuting delegates demanded justice. Many of the members, including Philip himself, merely shrugged at the accusations, not because they didn't believe the Achaeans, but instead because they just held such a low opinion of the Aetolians that their response was more, well, that is what they do. The League was thus responsible for its own dealings with the Aetolians, though a few allies were summoned on their behalf, including a high-ranking Illyrian leader named Scardalatus and his tribe. Like with the Cleomenean War, though, the conflict started off on the wrong foot for the Achaeans. The Aetolians continued to plunder Achaean territory unmolested, including a vicious sack of the Arcadian city of Kynathai which, admittedly, was due to the latter's duplicity and betrayal of the Achaeans, which the Aetolians took full advantage of. Sensing an opportunity for looting, Scardalatus and his Illyrian soon defected to run wild in Greece as well. As luck would have it, King Philip and his army had arrived in the Peloponnese, hoping to aid the floundering Achaean war effort. He realized that the Aetolian problem was serious, their actions going beyond even what they were normally capable of. The members of the Simaki then convened at Corinth, perhaps a simple reminder of the power of Macedonia, to discuss their plans against Aetolia. Well, all of the allies except for Sparta, who had largely been ambivalent on the matter. The Spartans were fortunate enough to not have had their city razed to the ground following the end of the war and Cleomenes' flight just two years prior. Docent's generosity had prevented them from being enslaved or worse, but since Cleomenes had overthrown the traditional government and effectively turned into an autocracy, political infighting and fragmentation had gripped the city in the wake. Sparta had been involuntarily inducted into the Simaki and remained largely aloof in their need to support their allies. The few troops that they sent were entirely to keep appearances. The Aetolians were aware of the situation and hoped to create chaos in the eastern Peloponnese by getting the Spartans to renounce their alliance with the Achaeans and Macedonia. Sparta had been rivals with Messenia for centuries. The Aetolian attacks wouldn't have bothered them particularly too much anyways. And as a gesture of goodwill, the Aetolians also revoked their declaration of war against Laconia. 
Inside Sparta formed a pro-Aetolian movement, or at the very least an anti-Macedonian one. Some hoped for the return of Cleomenes, who was residing in Alexandria as part of the retinue of Ptolemy IV. Members of the Spartan Aphorite, for it had since been restored after Cleomenes, had been assassinating anyone who spoke favorably about the Achaeans or the Macedonians, a proper cause for alarm when Philip found out. He quickly departed from Corinth and marched as far as Tegea before the Spartan delegates were sent to meet him. They claimed that the murdered Ephors were dissidents, and the remaining body were fully committed to the Simaki. As terrible of a lie as it was, the king and his council deliberated on what to do next. Some urged retribution, turned Sparta into a pile of ashes as Alexander had done at Thebes. Others, like Aratus of Sicyon, stressed moderation, arguing that the Spartans had only done injury to themselves and not to the alliance as a whole. By Philip's good graces, the Spartans once again narrowly avoided destruction at the behest of a Macedonian king, but they were required to renew their oaths with the Simaki. No doubt Philip was keen to make a good impression on his fellow Greeks by emulating his uncle, and Aratus was hopeful that he could temper any despotic tendencies the young king might have. But the fate of Sparta was a small matter in the larger aims of the assembly. The delegates at Corinth each came forward and listed their grievances against the Aetolians, who were accused of unprovoked attacks, the plundering of temples, and other nasty business. This glorified band of raiders had burned through whatever remaining goodwill that they had, replaced only with a righteous anger from their enemies. Philip agreed with the sentiment, and in that year the Simaki elected to go to war, the start of the so-called Social War, a name derived from the Latin term for allies, Socii, as the conflict was waged in the name of the larger alliance. This decision moved beyond a mere declaration of war against troublesome neighbors. It had become a sacred war, the Simaki fully intending to obliterate any trace of the Aetolians. All its territory was to be considered forfeit, the populace enslaved, and even their Hellenic identity was to be lost following their removal from the Amphictyonic Council overseeing the Temple of Delphi. As one last chance, Philip sent a letter to the Aetolians warning them to comply with their demands lest they face the wrath of the Alliance, but they merely shrugged it off, and elected the belligerent Scopas as the head of their league. Throughout the winter of 220-219, Philip was quickly building up his army through recruitment drives and diplomatic overtures. The Illyrian prince Scordelatus was rather disappointed with the Aetolians, entirely on the basis that they didn't hand over any of the plunder that they promised, so Philip was able to convince him to provide naval assistance with a generous payment of 20 talents per year. Support from the rest of the allies was trickling in, barring two major exceptions. The first were the Mycenaeans, who, despite being the primary victims of Aetolian depredation that started this whole mess in the first place, were nevertheless uncomfortable with the prospects of going to war, it could also be tied to their proximity to the second unwilling power, the Spartans. Philip's generous treatment and renewal of the alliance did little to prevent the Spartan erosion from the Simaki, and the lack of an answer to the Macedonian envoys was concerning. Worse yet was the invitation of Aetolian delegates to oversee the election of new ephors. Worse yet was the invitation of Aetolian delegates to oversee the election of new ephors. In front of the Spartan assembly, the Aetolian messenger blasted the Macedonians as oppressors, calling for the restoration of the diarchy. Ever since Cleomenes fled Sparta, its thrones had remained empty, with many hoping that the reformer king would return. By 219, though, word from Egypt revealed that Cleomenes was dead, and so the election of new kings became a rallying cry for the anti-Macedonian party and much of the young men of the city. Initially, the envoy failed, 
but the subsequent massacre of the more cautious ephors by Spartan extremists allowed the Aetolians to return and install kings loyal to the cause. It seems that Messenia's gamble at neutrality did not pay off, and they now found themselves sandwiched between a hostile Sparta to the east and a hostile Elis to the west. Philip, meanwhile, was dealing with some of the allies in the Symmachi dragging their feet, namely Epirus, and Aratus of Sicyon was to step down from leadership of the Achaean League for his son, Aratus the Younger. The king nevertheless began the invasion of Aetolia in the early summer, capturing the city of Ambracus after 40 days of siege, partially as a way to keep the good faith of the Epirotes, but also for access to the Ambracian Gulf along the Ionian Sea. But bad news came from Macedonia. Scopus had managed to stream across Thessaly and sack the Macedonian city of Dium, destroying its renowned Temple of Zeus. The Aetolians were not doing any favors for themselves when it came to committing terrible acts of sacrilege. To compensate for the loss of Ambracia, later that autumn the recalcitrant Dorimachus also decided to attack and burn down the Temple of Zeus in Epirotodona, another widely respected religious sanctuary. Young Philip persisted in his efforts though, pushing south along the coastline into Acarnania, storming multiple citadels and fortresses with tremendous success. Further reports from Macedonia of a potential Dardanian invasion compelled the king to return home for the time being, garrisoning the settlements that he had captured in the meanwhile. Philip oversaw the autumn harvest in Macedonia and replenished his supplies, but defied everyone's expectations by launching a winter campaign in 219-218. Braving through the brutal seasonal conditions, the Macedonians managed to link up with the Achaean army of Aratus the Younger and invaded the Peloponnese, catching the Aetolians by surprise. Like Alexander at the Sogdian Rock, Philip's daring enabled him to brave a vicious siege of the near-impenetrable mountain fortress of Sophus in northwestern Arcadia, his troops scrambling up icy rocks and wind-slipped cliffs in the face of vicious missile fire from the Aetolian garrison inside. Once the Macedonians broke into the city, the Sophidians capitulated. Again, the generosity of Philip oversaw a relatively peaceful transfer of ownership to the Achaean League by allowing the native Sophidians to return to their homes without harm. This generosity would not be extended to the thousands of prisoners taken at smaller engagements with Aetolian troops earlier in the campaign, nor the captives from his subsequent invasion of Elise following the capture of Sophus. It was a spectacular display of Philip's leadership abilities, and a major setback for the Aetolians, though the king needed to return to Macedonia to give his troops a break for the rest of the winter season. While the war was going quite splendidly for Philip, there were underlying problems that severely affected its conduct. First was the poor performance of the Achaean League. From the very start, the military capabilities of the Achaeans were lackluster, and downright embarrassing at times. In many instances, the League was unable to keep up with Philip's army, or had melted in the face of the Aetolians during actual engagements. Leadership had seen better days since Heratus the Elder had gradually moved to an advisory position, and many of the elected were either merely passable, like Aratus the Younger, or outright incompetent. Philip's resentment towards the situation must have been palpable, since he was the one effectively carrying the team, or, in his opinion, shackled to the terms of the Simaki by treating the Achaeans as an equal partner. What didn't help the king's disposition either were the whispers of the court. Despite his skilled and brave generalship, Philip was still a young man, and relied upon the advice of his companions and royal friends. Unfortunately, they seemed to be more interested in protecting their own affairs rather than overseeing the good governance of the king. Case in point was the number one cause of the general malaise of the Macedonian court, Apelles. As we recall, 
Apelles and four other members of the Macedonian nobility were handpicked by Antigonus Doson to oversee Philip's best interests. Doson understood the power brokering of the members of the court and hoped that by selectively choosing these advisors, taking political rivalries and other such dynamics into consideration, he would create a stalemate where no one man would gain too much influence. Ambitious and thoughtful, though ultimately conceived in vain. The court immediately broke into two factions, with Apelles and two other figures forming the majority. Apelles soon wormed his way into the king's ear, acquiring Philip's trust and confidence. During the war, Apelles pushed for Philip to take an Antiochian stance. Under his supervision, several offenses like thievery and forced evictions were committed by Macedonian troops against soldiers of the League, and any who tried to speak out were punished severely. Aratus, at least in the eyes of Polybius, was trying his best to keep Philip well-tempered and moderate in his rule. He brought forward the grievances of the Achaeans, and the king did put a stop to Apelles' behavior. This only earned the enmity of the advisor, who immediately set a plot in motion to poison the relationship between Aratus and Philip. Apelles approached several Achaean officials who despised Aratus, and sought their friendship to interfere with the outcome of their election in the summer of 218. The candidate backed by Aratus was defeated, and an incompetent buffoon named Aparatus was elected instead. The seeds of mistrust were sown, with Apelles suggesting that the king assert his authority over the Achaeans. If he was to pay heed to the advice of Arontus, then the League would always be perceived as an equal, not a subordinate partner to Macedonia. After the Achaean elections, Apelles continued his attack on the Sicyonian. In one incident, an Elean general named Amphidamus was captured during the Macedonian invasion. Rather than enslaving him or ransoming off as a prisoner of war, Philip hoped that by letting him return to Elise with a rather generous peace offering, he could cement some sort of alliance between the two powers. The Eleans did not take the bait, but Apelles laid the blame for this mishap on Aratus, accusing him of sabotaging Philip's endeavor to prevent the Macedonians from becoming too powerful. Whether out of genuine concern or curious disbelief, Philip invited Aratus to stand before him and have Apelles recite his charges. Upon hearing this accusation, the Achaean general demanded evidence be presented to the king before he was condemned. Of course, no proof was brought forth, and Amphidamus even provided testimony indicating that he had never spoken with Herotus before. The courtier looked like an idiot, and Herotus meanwhile was found innocent, with the king placing even more trust in him than before. The damage to Apelles' reputation was humiliating, and he soon lost favor with King Philip. In his rage, he formed a conspiracy with other members of the court, namely Leontius and Megalius, with the aim to hamstring Philip's war effort as revenge. Very dramatic. But all this comes from the perspective of Polybius, that is to say, Arontus' perspective, and many of Apelles' crimes border on the fantastical. A heavy grain of salt is therefore recommended. Anyways, the king was hosting a large feast at the Acarnanian city of Limnaia in the summer of 218 to celebrate his successes. All of his officers were there, including Aratus, who joined in the festivities. Too much wine was passed around, and the liquid courage of the conspirators gave them the brilliant idea to harass Aratus as he was returning to his quarters. A fight soon erupted between the supporters of the two parties, much to the outrage of Philip, who quickly broke it up. Upon discovering that it was Megalius who started the fight, the king imprisoned him and ordered that he pay a 20-talent fine as restitution before being released. The next morning, Leontius stormed to the royal tent with a bodyguard, presumably in the belief that he could intimidate the youth, but stood down when Philip was steadfast in his judgment, and vowed to take on the charge instead. 
A short while later, the conspirators made their next move while the king was in Corinth. Leontius, Megalius, and a third conspirator named Ptolemaeus spread rumors to the members of the royal guard that the king would be taking away their privileges like the right to first choice of plunder. A gang of riotous troops soon ran amok in the Macedonian quarters. Raiding the royal tent, since the king was absent in nearby Lycium, and the housing of several of Philip's philoi. Naturally, Philip was outraged by their behavior, and once he sped back to Corinth, he ordered his troops to assemble in the square, chastising them for their behavior. Admittedly, the king was quite tolerant towards his rowdy troops, for he was already aware of the culprits behind the ruckus. Nevertheless, he restrained himself from openly retaliating, preferring to keep quiet until the moment was right. While Apelles was a scoundrel, he was likely not involved in the riots. He, however, had been busy fluffing up his own position in the Chalcius and causing trouble for the king in his own special way. Apelles had been undermining Philip's authority by making himself the sole arbiter of affairs without consulting the king. The Antigonid ruler was no fool, and had been secretly keeping abreast of the situation, all the while struggling to contain his fury. Journeying to Corinth, Apelles was received by his fellow conspirators in a gaggle of praise as he entered the city, no doubt in a state of total bliss and believing that he was in control of the situation. As he approached the king's tent, the guards barred him from entering, as Philip would not receive him, a humiliating blow when Macedonian kings were expected to be extremely accessible. Apelles' so-called friends soon melted away when they realized the courtier's churn of fortune and Megalias almost fled the city under the belief that the plot had been discovered. Apelles was still allowed to attend functions of the state, but was demoted to being in the back of the room instead of being the king's right hand. Perhaps Philip was intending to be merciful, but letters allegedly written by Megalias were soon produced that demonstrated the guilt of all three men. Acting swiftly and suddenly, Leontius and Ptolemaeus were arrested and put to death, while Megalias and Apelles committed suicide. Philip had successfully managed to restore order to the court, and was able to proceed with the operations of the war as planned. The experience hardened the young king to the dangerous machinations of his supposed advisors, one that was also experienced by the contemporary Ptolemy IV of Egypt and Antiochus III of Syria. But, for the moment, there was still the matter of the Aetolians to deal with. Having covered the conspiracies of the court, let us return to our original point just following the siege of Sophus in early 218. Shortly before the arrival of spring, Philip met with the Achaeans to discuss the direction of the war. If they were going to make their way into the southern Peloponnese and Aetolia, they could not just limit themselves to land operations. A motion was passed where the League would contribute a monthly stipend of 17 talents which would go to Philip's war chest to pay for the building of a great fleet. Quite a few Macedonians took a break from their duties as hoplites to learn how to row and staff these vessels, while the rest of the fleet would be supplemented by the ships of the more navally inclined members of the Simaki. The king's first move was to set upon and seize the island of Kefalonia, and while he was unsuccessful in taking the city of Pale by siege, perhaps due in large part to the conspirator Leontius's purposefully weak performance, he managed to raid the surrounding countryside of its summer harvest. From Cephalonia, he sailed back to the mainland through the Ambracian Gulf and disembarked his troops from his ships in friendly Acarnanian territory. With upwards of 10,000 men, Philip led a forced march from the city of Limnaia to the Aetolian Thermum, a remarkable distance of over 80 kilometers or 50 miles in a single day. 
an important religious center and grain storehouse for the League, the Thermians were shocked by the speed at which Philip advanced into their territory. The king in turn was able to capture a great amount of plunder and supplies during his sack of the city, taking revenge for the loss of Dodona and Diem in a similar vein as Alexander at Persepolis. Despite his hatred of the Aetolians, Polybius himself disapproved of the destruction of Thermum, believing it to be a slippery slope from a just ruler to a despotic tyrant. Once the Macedonians cleaned up operations in the Aetolian territory, they returned to the Ambracian Gulf and sailed for Corinth. At the nearby city of Tegea, they met with Nikian army and joined up with them, intent on launching a sneak attack against the Spartans in Laconia. The new Spartan king Lycurgus was totally caught off guard by this maneuver, believing Philip to still be in Aetolia reveling in the pillaging of Thermum when the scouts realized that the Macedonian Achaean army had long crossed their borders. The young Antigonid brought fire and sword to the entirety of Lacedaemonia, pillaging as far as the southern tips of the Peloponnese and easily defeating Lycurgus's relief force. With a great amount of booty, Philip returned to Corinth in triumph. Following the campaigns of Sparta in the summer of 218, an attempt at mediation between the Symmachi and the Aetolians was overseen by delegates from Rhodes and Chios, who were concerned about the wider ramifications of the war portrayed in the Aegean. Initially warm to the idea, the Aetolians decided against the ceasefire when they became aware of Philip's internal strife due to the work of Apelles and the conspirators, namely the riots of Corinth. Philip himself was eager to end negotiations and resume the war, but by the time the conference was finished, the campaigning season had also ended, and winter begun to set in. In late 218, early 217, the Aetolians were the ones to make the surprising move. The ineptitude of the Achaean general Apparatus had left much of their territory understaffed and ill-prepared for any sort of defenses, banking on the winter weather to act as a natural deterrent to any military actions, though conveniently forgetting that Philip had invaded the Peloponnese just the year prior in similar conditions. Capitalizing on the laziness of Apparatus, a couple of Aetolian commanders invaded western Achaea and caused major havoc before retreating into Aetolia. Thus ended the disgraceful career of Apparatus, and the Achaeans had enough sense to elect Aratus the Elder in the next election. Philip, on the other hand, was too busy to launch an immediate counterattack, for he had been busy expanding Macedonian territory to the north in Paeonia, hoping to put a stop to any further depredation from the Dardanians. Once the major Paeonian city of Bylazora fell into his hands, the Antigonid king immediately whirled around and marched at rapid pace to Thessaly, where the Aetolians had seized the city of Melatea in the eastern hinterlands. While the speed of Philip's arrival shocked the Melateans, the fortifications of the city had been underestimated, and the siege had to be called off when the Macedonians realized that their ladders would be way too short to breach the walls. While that operation ended prematurely, Philip more than compensated by immediately pursuing another siege at the city of Phythionic Thebes, which had served as a primary base for the Aetolians in their raids of Thessaly and Macedonia. To deal with the city's stone fortifications that had a circumference of nearly 3 kilometers, Philip's engineers produced 150 catapults and another 25 more powerful stone-throwing engines to pepper the walls and the unlucky Thebans inside, while the sappers went to work to try to undermine the structures. Nearly two weeks had passed before the walls were finally dropped by the miners, and the beleaguered citizens inside capitulated immediately, only to be sold into slavery, and the city was renamed as Philippi in honor of the king's victory. The Aetolians were able to strike hard and fast in retaliation, plundering Epirus and Acarnania about the same time as the capture of Thebes, and the Illyrians under Scyrtalatus even betrayed the Macedonians by stealing a couple of warships. 
But the Achaeans, under the renewed leadership of Aratus in the May of 217, were able to amass a great body of mercenaries to bolster their ranks, some 11,000 in number. This gave added security to the allies of the Achaeans, and placed great pressure on the Aetolians. For all their successes, the war had been taking a severe toll on the Aetolians. Since Philip was able to snuff out the dissident members of the court, and was only becoming more confident in his role as king-commander, the attitudes of the Aetolian leadership had softened to the idea of peace. A second delegation effort from Rhodes and Chios had approached Philip shortly after the capture of Thebes. They, however, were given support by the city of Byzantium and Ptolemy IV Philopater, who also sent envoys, the latter of whom was probably looking to secure Aetolian support during the Fourth Syrian War against Antiochus III of the Seleucid Empire. Philip had agreed to meet with the Aetolians and the other delegates, and all parties traveled to the city of Naupactus to finalize the peace, bringing the social war to an end in the summer of 217. The conduct of Philip during the social war was nothing but exemplary. Personal bravery and tactical brilliance made for a deadly combination when he embarked on winter campaigns, hit-and-run raids, and tough sieges. Polybius stresses repeatedly at how everyone underestimated the Antigonid ruler solely based on his youth, and they paid the price when he ran circles around their armies and stormed their cities. The campaigns themselves cost little in the way of Macedonian lives, and the Aetolians and their allies suffered greatly throughout the conflict. Philip was proving himself to be a worthy successor to the great kings of Macedonia, and was still only in his early 20s. During the final stages of the social war, however, Philip is said to have been keeping his ear to the ground for the events transpiring outside of his kingdom. It appears that the Seleucids and Ptolemies were once again going at it in Syria, but more pressing news came from across the Adriatic. A great conflict had been raging between the Carthaginians and the Romans across the whole of Italy, and the Romans appeared to be taking the worst of it. Philip had remained focused on his own battles, but these Italian barbarians had already established a foothold in Illyria little over a decade before when they battled Queen Tuta of the Ardii. Now a messenger from Macedonia arrived in July of 217 with word of a great victory at Lake Trasimene, won by the Carthaginian commander, Hannibal Barca. According to Polybius, the delegates in Naupactus managed to broker a peace between the Symmachi and Aetolia by emphasizing the Roman threat, urging that the Greeks should cease their squabbling and unite in the face of the barbarian foes to the west. With his glories in the social war, young Philip was confident in his chances and chose to take advantage of the preoccupied Romans by allying with Hannibal. This decision would prove to have far greater ramifications than Philip could have possibly imagined, not just for Macedonia, but for the fate of the Hellenistic world. <laughs>